staff go through college and training them, uh, you just have these little people. And of course, uh, watching some of your staff go through college and training them, uh, you just have these little snapshots. I remember, of course, uh, watching some of your staff go through college and training them, uh, you just have these little snapshots. I remember when Brother uh, Ryan and Robin began to date, and if there was ever a star-struck couple, it was them. And a lot of times, uh, we would have just a time for greeting, like we did a minute ago. He, in fact, he told us, let's all shake each other's hands. And I remember specifically watching them during handshaking at church and sometimes at college. They always had these prolonged handshake sessions. <laughs> and I remember one time going up and saying, okay, we're done, we're done shaking hands. You've, some of you have never been to a Bible college. Bible college students are not allowed to hold hands and hug and kiss and stuff like that. They've got to wait until they get married for all that. So they really like long handshaking sessions in Bible college. So I remember that. And then I remember uh, Ryan actually worked on our staff. I forget if it was a year or two after Bible college, he taught in our Christian school. And one day I was preaching in chapel, and I forget what I was illustrating, to be honest with you, maybe something like the flesh and the spirit fighting against each other, or something like that. And, uh, and I said, Ryan, help me. And so, so I was kind of pushing against him, and he was pushing against me. And, and, uh, and I, I remember I pushed Ryan right through a wall. <laughs> I mean, right through the sheetrock. And... Uh, He's, he's kind of a weak fella, really, you know, and, and uh, you, you know how music directors are, just a little softer, and, and uh, I don't know where he went, he's probably hiding back here by the baptistry, but you can, you can tell him I said that, but, but Ryan always, always had such a good attitude, and, and it's just a blessing. Uh, when we started West Coast Baptist College, it was kind of like just starting a second job, uh, literally, just the, in every way, the staffing, the financing, the pressures, and, and, uh, and in addition to pastoring quite a, quite a large church, and, and so uh, there's been a lot of days where, well, let's just say this, I had hair when we started it, all right, so, uh, uh, but when you, when you get out and you preach across the country and you see graduates that are being faithful to the Lord, it's really a blessing, it really is, and I, I think of uh, John uh, Tellis, and, and I remember him uh, just, just like he serves around here when he was in Bible college, running all around and, and uh, playing. On, I remember him playing on the football uh, games and, and uh, always having so much zeal. And I remember thinking, how can someone that small play that tough? He always played so tough. And, and um, just to see him working around here and getting things done. And, and, uh, and then, of course, to have our son here and, and uh, just to see God developing our son, Matt, as a preacher and as a man of God. Every time Matt calls me, uh, it, just about every time when we talk about just uh, whatever, it always comes back to the Word of God and some passage that he's studying. And I can't tell you the joy that that brings to my heart as a dad. And a lot of times I don't have the answers. I just kind of bluff him and go back and check it real quick and call him back, you know, because and, and, uh, he's getting into a passage and he's, he's breaking it down and wanting to know the right uh, interpretation. And uh, so thank you for uh, your kindness to he and, and uh, Katie and, and our little grandbaby, Olivia. And uh, it's just always good to be here, and, and we know so many of you, Brother Samuel, thank you for your faithfulness, and, and uh, I'm excited about what God has in store. And let me just encourage you, pro probably, and, and, and my brother has asked me to say nothing, if you knew anything about your pastor, he's not one of these men that just tries to prime the pump in the flesh. He really wants God to do what God wants to do. So he never asked me to say anything uh, in, in respect to what's coming up. But if I could share with you just a testimony from my life, I can't say this to my church, but uh, probably the most stressful, uh, challenging spiritual warfare type of seasons that I go through in my ministry are always the weeks preceding special offerings. I can't tell you why that is. 
I, I think part of it is because the Bible says where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So for those of us who start kicking away more and more into the, into the work of the Lord, the devil knows he's losing his grip on you because your heart is more and more in the eternal. And uh, someone said a cold heart and a stingy hand go together. And uh, so, so, for example, I, I preached this, this Sunday, I'll be preaching for three weeks on stewardship and on, on giving. And we're, we're praying, and if you want to pray with us, sometime in the next several months, if God will let us, we're going to break ground on the largest building ever built on our campus, which is 60,000 square feet, $8 million building. It's just, it, it, it's just phenomenal to think about it, frankly. And I'm, I'm going to wait uh, till we get about probably 65% of the funds just for this project. So it'll depend on how our offering goes in about four weeks from right now. But just trying to lead people to that point, encouraging everyone to give without being too pressure-filled, but knowing how great the need is. So you're kind of like dying, and you know, boy, we, it takes a lot of resources to, to do big things for the Lord. And then you're, you're not wanting to be too pressure-filled. And, and uh, then inevitably... I'll just tell you this. This is what we preachers hear during these stewardship seasons. People will say, well, uh, you know, I lost my job. Well, you know, I gave all I had last year. I'm moving. Um, I, it's like, thanks for the encouragement, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so let me encourage you not only to give, but also just to have a wonderful spirit. And uh, there's a lot of folks that get flushed out during, during these types of times. And uh, they'll say different things, and they'll talk about it's, it's too loud, and it's uh, and the church is too warm, or it's too cold. And you, and you know what a lot of times it is? They don't want to give. And so let me encourage you to be a warm-hearted, generous Christian. Do your best, and, uh, and because uh, I believe God's going to bless in a great way. And our first offering of this nature was, in 1988, it was called Giving by Faith. Why? We had no land that we knew to purchase, no building that we knew to purchase. We, we, we didn't know what we were going to do. We just knew we were a church uh, just blowing out the walls. We had like 30 parking spots. And I said, folks, I'm new at this. I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know how it's going to work. But let's just give to God and let him tell us where to go. I think I saw that in the Bible once. Faith pleases God. And uh, our folks gave $50,000. Uh, in fact... Uh, we had uh, 25 families gave $50,000, young families, brand new Christians, and it was about days later that we bought the property where we now are, and they said, now you're going to have to bring $50,000 into escrow. And I remember saying, no problem, we got it. No. And you know why there was no problem? Because we obeyed God by faith. And so I'm praying for you this Sunday, and I hope, hope you got my heart, and, and pray for your pastor uh, especially during those times, those seasons of, of uh, asking the Lord for miracles and moving forward in building construction, and he'll appreciate that, I know. Stand, please, and turn to Luke chapter 9 as we stand uh, for the reading of the Word of God. And tonight's message is a little bit different, but I'm excited about it because it's something that touches my heart, and normally I find when I preach something that touches my heart, it normally can help others too. And so tonight, I've entitled the message, Who is the Greatest? And you're going to see why in just a minute. Because the disciples got hung up on that. And our theme tonight is revive. And one thing that I've learned, if there's a quick kill button to revival, it's pride. If there's one thing that hinders the work of the Lord in my life, it's when I get to thinking too much of me. And, and so that's why James said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And today we're going to learn about the importance 
of uh, humbling ourselves before the Lord, not worrying about our stature, our position, but simply wanting to lift him up. So look at Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 50 is our text tonight. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all the same shall be great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the wonderful crowd tonight and the beautiful music, and thank you for the privilege to just fellowship and to pray and to sing. Now we come to the centerpiece of worship. That is your word. And we thank you that we can open an infallible book tonight and that we can learn from eternal truths. And I pray that you would help us tonight to be conformed to your image. Help us to take this truth and apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. As you come to this portion of Luke's gospel, you are coming to the conclusion of what is commonly referred to as the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. He has been healing the sick, he has been teaching and preaching, he has fed the 5,000, his ministry has been amazingly expansive during this time, and now as we turn the corner after Luke 9, Jesus is beginning his journey towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards his crucifixion on the cross of Calvary. For this particular moment in Luke chapter 9, we find Jesus back in the city of Capernaum. I remember a number of years ago visiting Capernaum with my brother, a small seaside village. Uh, even to this day, you can find the ruins of the first century uh, synagogue and the ruins of the homes of some of the original disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the headquarters of his Galilean ministry. And it is from this point that he will begin moving toward the cross of Calvary. It was, in fact, prophesied by Jesus in verses 44 through 45 when he said, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Now just, just pause and think about that for a moment. He says, Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Do you ever say something to your children like, Listen to me, or don't miss this. And Jesus is saying, Don't miss this. The Son of Man... I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. My life is coming to an end. Now, sometimes when we hear important things like that, we can misunderstand or not be on the same plane of understanding. And in fact, Jesus had told his disciples over and over again that he would lay down his life, that uh, he would take it back up again. And somehow throughout all of that, they kept missing what he was telling them. They kept thinking that that was hyperbole or that was some kind of evangelistic speak, but not in reality what was going to happen. And I think one of the things we want to do is make sure that as we listen to the Word of God and read the Word of God, that we say, Lord, help me not to put aside what you're trying to tell me. I want to know the meaning of what you're saying to me for my life. Reminds me of a little girl uh, who came to her daddy. Her name was Carol. She said, Daddy... 
who is Richard Strands? And uh, her daddy said, I've never heard of him, Carol. Uh, he must be an important person. He said, why do you ask that question? And Carol said, well, she said, when we pledge the allegiance to the flag at school, we always say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and for the Republic of Richard Strands. Now, she had been through several years of school pledging to Richard Strands, not realizing for the republic for which it stands. And, you know, oftentimes we can go through life, uh, and I remember as a boy in church singing all those years, bringing in the sheaves. I didn't know what that meant, so I just made up my own words, bringing in the sheep. That's what I always sing, bringing in the sheep, bringing in the sheep. And, and, and that's what these disciples were doing. Jesus was saying one thing, they were kind of thinking another thing, and it wasn't really sinking into their heart. And so when we think about the problem the disciples were experiencing, it's a common problem that we experience as well. And if you have your notes tonight, I want you to notice uh, as, we, as we look into the lives of these disciples and their relationship with Jesus, notice first and foremost that there is a defective reasoning in their hearts, a defective reasoning. Now, while Jesus was telling the disciples of his approaching suffering and death, they are arguing about their relative importance. Now, look at that in verse 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. Now, let's just kind of put these two pieces of the puzzle together. Jesus says, listen to me. I'm about to give my life. I'm going to die in Jerusalem on the hill of the skull, I'm going to lay down my life. I've told you this before. Let this sink down into your ears. Next verse. Right, Jesus. By the way, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Will it be me? Am I going to be the one on your right hand, Jesus? Am I going to be the one that everybody kind of notices and I'll be the one that tells people what to do? And when I, when I read that, at, at, at first, I, I think to myself, how dumb can you get? But then I think, about as dumb as I am sometimes. Because in the light of eternity, the things that we worry about and the things that we posture for and the things that we think are so important are really not that important at all. And so we see here a contentious rivalry. A contentious rivalry. Notice the Bible says in verse number 46, then there arose a reasoning. Uh, we see that this Rivalry kind of rose up amongst them. Now, let me tell you this evening that the enemy of gratitude is an expectant spirit. And one of the great lessons of life for marriages and in any life pattern is that we must recognize we set ourselves up for discouragement when we go into a relationship expecting something out of it. If you go into your marriage expecting what you're going to get, you're going to have marital problems very, very quickly. Marriage is not about what you get out of it. It's about what you put into it. If you go to a job expecting that, boy, this job is going to provide happiness for me, you're going to find that's the wrong attitude. Your attitude ought to be, what can I put into this? And, and, and the fact of the matter is, if you come even to a church with the idea, wonder, wonder how this will help me, you're missing the point. It's not what the church can do for you. It's going to do plenty. But the spirit of the servant is, what can I do here? 
How can I serve? And these men had a contentious rivalry because they were expecting position. They were expecting power. They were expecting, as many of you know, that Jesus would establish his earthly kingdom and they would be right there wielding the sword, helping him get rid of these pesky Roman soldiers and getting rid of Herod and all of the rest of them and they would be ruling and reigning right now with Jesus Christ. And Jesus had a different plan that included shedding blood for the sins of the world sitting at the right hand of his father during this age of grace. Yes, he will come again. Yes, he will establish David's kingdom. But that was not to happen imminently. And so he tried to prepare them. And now they had this contentious rivalry, and it was an expectancy that was born of pride. Now, Proverbs 3 and verse 10 says, Only by pride cometh contention. Let's say that together. Only by pride... Right? You ever hear about... Uh, Two people just arguing and fighting, just mark it down. There's pride there. Only by pride cometh contention. And these men, with their proud spirits, are arguing back and forth. There arose this, uh, this contention among them. They were expecting to be elevated in the kingdom. Matthew 19, 27 says, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? You see the attitude? Jesus, hey, look what we've done for you. We left everything. What do we get out of it? Again, I want to tell you something. If all we get out of it is salvation from hell and a home in heaven, we are blessed. But sometimes we get the idea of, hey, what do I get out of it? Wearsby says, how strange that the twelve should respond as they did to another announcement about the cross. Instead of being humbled, they argued over who was the greatest. Perhaps the failure of the nine to cast out the demons and the privilege of the three who went on the mountain with Jesus created rivalry among them. How Peter, James, and John would have enjoyed telling the nine what they saw on the mountain, but Jesus had told them to be quiet. You see, just prior to this was the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John had gone up and they had been with the Lord in that precious moment. And, and the other perhaps were a little bit put aside. They didn't get to experience that. We don't know what was causing this rivalry, but we know it was of the flesh, and we see it amongst Christians so often, and it ought not to be. The Bible says in Mark 9 and verse 33, and he came to Capernaum and began, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed amongst yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed amongst themselves who should be the greatest. So this was a problem that they were experiencing. Now let me just tell you something about this matter of, of recognition, if you will. The Bible says in Psalm 75 and verse 6, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is judge. He putteth down one, he setteth up another, and they were worrying about things that they didn't need to worry about. God would have his timing in it. And so we see their expectancy was born of pride, and their expectancy was the opposite of gratitude. And they were not exhibiting a gracious and thankful spirit. Colonel James Irving was a former astronaut, a part of the crew that made a successful moonwalk. He experienced the thrill connected with leaving this planet and seeing our planet shrink in size as he went up to the moon. And, and then, of course, he watched the earth rise one day and he thought of how privileged he was to be a part of that particular crew. As they began to come back home, he realized uh, that perhaps there would be some who would view him as some kind of a superstar and they would have these thoughts about him in, in the sense of celebrity. But in a moment of understanding how gracious God had been to him, God's Holy Spirit put humility into his heart and 
he wrote these words. He said, as I was returning to earth, I realized I was a servant, not a celebrity. So I'm here as God's servant on planet earth to share what I've experienced that others might know the glory of God. You know, it doesn't matter what you experience in business, in the military, in ministry. Any success you've ever had is to the glory of God. It's not so that we can ramp ourselves up. And it's not so that we can say, who's the greatest? It's not so that we can say, if you knew how many men in my church have told me that they have met a president. If you knew how many of them have told me about the things they've done in business or how many of them have told me about the degrees that they have in education, all of which are wonderful experiences, but all of which need to be kept in our hearts in humility in the sense that we're not to brag, but we are to rejoice that God is using us, and we need to always give God the glory for the blessings of life. It was a contentious rivalry, but notice, secondly, it was a contemplated thought. Now notice what it says in verse 46. There arose a reasoning among them. Now the word reasoning means a deliberation within self. An inward thinking that resulted in outward words and actions. Luke chapter 6, as it notes, verse 45. A good man out of the treasure of his mouth bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. And they were thinking and they were dwelling on being the greatest, being one of, this word uh, speaks of being one of the megas, one of the big ones. And oftentimes we see uh, with churches and with individuals wanting to be mega and it begins to cause something in their heart uh, that is not of God. It is of the flesh. They were thinking about rank in the kingdom. They were wondering if they would have position in the kingdom. And the Bible is very clear about this mindset. The Bible says in Romans 12 and verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dwelt, dealt to every man the measure of faith. Philippians 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. You see, most men are not prepared for the tasks that we think we're capable of. Most of the time we men feel like, you know, I could handle that, or why don't I get to do this, or how come I'm not in charge? How come this isn't happening to me? And the fact of the matter is that none of us should think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Matthew 20 and verse 20, 20 says this, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant that these two, my sons, may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Moms, how many of you think she thought pretty highly of her two boys to say to Jesus, Hey, I want my boys to have the right and the left, Lord, if you don't mind. I want one to be the vice president. I want the other one to be the secretary of state. When the kingdom gets going, Lord, I just want to submit some names to you because, I mean, I know you're God and everything, but let me just tell you how you might want to run your kingdom. And look at verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I baptize? Do you know what cup he was speaking about? Do you know what cup they ultimately all drank? It was the cup of death. 
He says, men, you, you, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, are you able to drink of the cup? Look at the last three words of that verse, number 22. What are they, please? The last, uh, do you have it in your notes, Matthew 20, 22? Here's the last words, Matthew 20, 22. They said unto him, we are able. Let's say that together. We are able. Jesus said, hey guys, do you know what you're talking about? Do you know, do you really think you're able to do this? And they said, got it covered, Lord. We're able. We're right there with you, you know. Don't, don't worry about a thing. We're able to take care of it. Can I remind you that without him, we can do nothing. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. And so we need to understand that this defective reasoning will stop everything for revival. This defective reasoning will stop a happy marriage. This defective reasoning will hurt the spirit of the church. We must not think we're so great, we deserve, we, we, we. It's not about us, it's about him. There was a man being honored by receiving an honorary doctorate at a major university. When he was introduced by the, by the, to the audience, the announcer said, we have a very great man tonight in our midst. And then he said, no, we have a very, very, very great man in our midst tonight. And during the ride home, the man who received this honorary doctorate was kind of riding the crest of his wave of glory. And, and he asked his wife, he said, sweetheart, how many very, very, very great men do you suppose there are in this world? To which his wife said, one less than you think. <laughs> now this defective reasoning is a reasoning that brings destruction because pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so notice the defective reasoning, but then notice secondly, a declarative reproof. Whenever we become filled with pride, if we're saved, there's going to come a reproof into our life. Notice verse 47 now. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said to them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Now notice the perception of Jesus. It says in verse 47, Jesus perceiving their heart. Often when Christ perceives people's hearts, he will follow with a correction. He will do something to change their mind about themselves. Luke 5, 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your heart? Psalm 139 in verse 2, thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising, thou understandest my thoughts afar off. I just want to tell you tonight, I don't know where your mind is right now, but Jesus is there. He knows exactly what you're thinking at this moment. He knows exactly what you think of yourself. He knows exactly what thoughts go through our heart. He, he is omniscient. He knows everything. And he knew exactly what they were thinking about themselves. He knew they had this pride problem. And so he gives them, secondly, a picture of truth. Notice the picture of truth in verse 47. The Bible tells us that he takes a little child and he sets this child by them. Now, how many of you have noticed in Jesus' teachings that he often used his, uses parables or illustrations? And on this day, he's going to use a little child. And he brings this child out. And by putting the child next to him, he is giving honor to the child. Now remember, these men are like, Lord, can I be on the right? Can I be on the left? Mommy says, I'm ready. <laughs> and Jesus says to a little child, bring this little child next to me. 
Mark, in his gospel, chapter 9 and verse 36, wrote that Jesus took the child into his arms. He evidently did both things. He associated with the child. Charles Francis Adams was a 19th century political figure and diplomat. He kept a diary, as was common in the day, and he wrote in his diary one day, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary, which is still in existence. On that same day, Adams wrote in his diary, went fishing with my father today, the most wonderful day of my life. The father thought he was wasting time while with the son, but the son saw it as the greatest investment his dad had ever made. When we become so filled with ourselves that we begin thinking we're ready for this or for that, we begin to treat others as less significant. We begin to look at people only in the sense of what they can give us or what they can offer to us. But Jesus gives to them a picture of humility. Jesus brings the least of these amongst uh, the crowd into his own bosom. The Bible says in Mark 10 and verse 14, But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom, uh, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. The first lesson Jesus used uh, is the child to illustrate to them uh, what really mattered and how that they needed to have a spirit towards the least of these. I thank God that back in the 1970s, early 1970s, the church that I grew up in had a bus ministry. It was a bus ministry to go into poorer neighborhoods and knock on doors of children, many of them with split homes and many of them with parents who were alcoholics and they knocked on uh, one particular door of a little seventh grade girl named Terry. And, and uh, this was in San Jose, California. They said, wouldn't you like to come to Sunday school? And she sure wanted to, but uh, her mom and dad wouldn't let her come. And another time they went back, and on the third time they went back, and they said, we're going to have ice cream tomorrow after church. And little Terry said, I, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. And, and that Sunday her dad and mom let her ride the bus. Her dad was an alcoholic. He often beat her mother and her. He often said the worst of things to her and she was just wanting to know more about this God that loved her and wanting to know more about what happened at church and what it was all about. She went to church in her little mini skirt. She really didn't know about how to dress at church and she sat on the very back row of the church, scared to death. The preacher preached about heaven and hell and she wasn't sure that she was going to go to heaven. She was too afraid to come forward. There were so many people so she ran back to the bus and got home as quick as she could. But thank the Lord, that church also had something called soul winning. And on Tuesday night, they went to her home and they asked her if she knew whether or not she would spend eternity with Jesus. And she said, I don't know, but I want to know. And that night, the soul winners led little Terry to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And she rode the bus the next week and the next week. And she never missed riding the bus. And then she got her own car and she never missed Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. She wanted to go to Bible college. Her dad said, no, I'm not going to let you go to Bible college. She went to San Jose State for a few years. And finally, because of her submission to her father, he said, all right, you can go to Bible college. And that's where we met. And I remember falling in love with Terry because of her heart for God and because of her desire and obedience for the Lord. But I'm so thankful as I stand here tonight for a church that saw the importance of little children and that reached out into a neighborhood of, of children that maybe no one else wanted. No one else would have thought they were really of any value. But you know, Jesus places value on every single soul. 
And Jesus, in the midst of this proud contention, brings a little child uh, and he shows them what humility is all about. He shows them what service is all about. You see, the measure of a man's greatness is not how many people serve him, but how many people he serves. And Jesus was teaching his disciples what it meant to serve. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to be a minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And you've got to understand that in the, in the Greco-Roman culture, children were very disposable. Children were disregarded sometimes as trash. They were often molested in every way conceivable. They were often orphaned. They were often placed into slavery. They were not thought of highly at all. And Jesus, the Son of God, says, bring one of these children to me. Perhaps one of the orphan children. Perhaps one of the little street people. And he brings them unto himself and he says, I want you to know your value system is all wrong. And his illustration prohibits all of this comparison that was going on, all of this pride. Nowhere does he declare that someone is the greatest. Rather, he speaks simply of greatness. Greatness can be possessed and pursued, but greatness is not something that we can put, bestow upon ourselves. It is the gift of God. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Some of you have heard of D.L. Moody or maybe the Moody Bible Institute. D.L. Moody also had in Northfield, Massachusetts, a, a large conference grounds, and they would bring in people from all over America and Europe for Bible conferences. The conference ground still exists. It's for sale, in fact, today. And D.L. Moody at these conferences uh, did his best to host people, and like most of us preachers, he walked around and he kind of observed what was going on. And one night after the preaching, he walked through one of the dormitories where a large contingency of European guests were staying. And Moody noticed in this one hallway that there were several dozen pairs of shoes set outside the door. And Moody knew exactly why they were set outside the door. These were rather, rather wealthy Europeans, and it was common custom at the lodges and inns in Europe at that time that you would put your shoes outside and they would be polished by the hotel staff during the night, and you would wear them the next day. Well, Moody had no such staff uh, at his conference grounds, and there was uh, no provision for that. And when he saw them there wanting to help them, he said to one of the young Bible ministerial students, he said, uh, if you wouldn't mind getting some polish, let's get this polished. And, and uh, the young man said, okay, I'll do that. And, and yet when Moody came by about an hour later, it was apparent the young man had forgotten. And so Deal Moody took all of the shoes, went into the janitorial closet, mind you, Perhaps one of the greatest American preachers of all time, he preached to over a million people without the help of a sound system. He was a greatly used man of God, took several dozen pairs of shoes into a closet and spent several hours polishing each and every pair. And the only reason it was ever known was because the morning janitor caught D.L. Moody polishing those shoes. You see, greatness is not found in rank or position or title. It's found in being the servant of all. And the declarative reproof of Jesus was, your values are all wrong. Bring a little child to me. Let me teach you about what is important. And so I say to you tonight that God wants to revive, but we must humble our hearts before him. We see a defective reasoning that we all battle. We hear a declarative reproof from Jesus Christ. And then notice finally tonight, a discerning reminder. Jesus gives them a reminder. Notice in verse number 49, the Bible says, And John answered and said, Master, 
We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. Now notice John's misunderstanding. Here in these times, the Lord had given his disciples authority over demons. And uh, thank God we have authority even today in the name of Jesus Christ over the demon world. And may I say the demonic world is alive and well in the United States of America. With all respect to those of you who in your unregenerate years perhaps tattooed your body, uh, perhaps uh, in times when you're away from the Lord, may I just simply say that the desecration of the temple and the piercing of the temple was something we at one time only saw in National Geographic from pagan lands. And that we're seeing the increase of ascetic lifestyle, cutting, piercing. We're seeing the increase of bulimia. We're seeing the increase of anorexia. We're seeing the increase of self-mutilation. We're seeing the increase of homosexuality. All are indications of a society turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in this passage that Jesus had given his disciples power and authority over the devils, and, and we need today as God's people to walk in the Spirit and to plead the blood of Jesus Christ in this day in which we live and in which we raise our families. But in Luke 10, 17, the Bible says, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And, and so uh, there is an excitement, if you will. They go out. And many of you remember the 70 witnesses going out and they came back and they're like, awesome, dude, it really worked. I mean, those demons obeyed us. I mean, we were just saying the name of Jesus and people were moving out of the way. Lord, it really, really worked. And they were excited uh, that God gave them this power. But here we see something very, very interesting. It says in verse 49, John said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and we forbade him. Now what's happening here is this. John and the 12 disciples are so full of themselves that their biggest thought is, now, two things. We want to keep our position. We're going to be the greatest when that kingdom gets established. And we want to make sure no one else gets in on this action of, you know, casting out devils and doing some of this stuff because it's kind of like our club here. And, and, uh, and we've got we've to kind of make sure that, you know, no one else is allowed in the club. And so he says in verse 49, he says, Master, we saw one casting out devils, but we forbade him. We, we told him, hey, you're not supposed to do that. Only we can do that. And I want to tell you something, that when it comes to God revealing his power and people being saved and lives being changed, we ought to be thankful wherever that's happening. And one of the surefire signs of pride is when we say, well, I'm the only one that can really do it as well, or, you know, this type of thing. And they, they, they had a misunderstanding about this matter. In fact, it, the, the problem was not a problem of orthodoxy, because this other exorcist, this other person was a believer. He was doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. The problem was a problem of association. He wasn't with them, so therefore he couldn't be good. And that's a spirit we sometimes see amongst good Bible-believing Christians, and it's something that ought not to be so. When God is working, uh, we ought to be thankful. And so John had a misunderstanding, and, and, and Jesus secondly mentors him in verse number 50. And he says, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. A very succinct answer. Now, this is a proverbial saying. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite uh, in another passage uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. He said, if you are not for me, you are against me. 
It's a proverbial saying, but in this case, the proverb is, he that is not against us is for us. In other words, our ministry is not an exclusive ministry. There will be other collaborators who will help us get the job done. I don't know about you, I'm thankful tonight for other Bible-believing, soul-winning churches that take a stand and that get the gospel out. There are not as many as they should be. But my spirit, when I find one, is to say, thank God for that ministry and thank God for the souls that are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of one of you, my brethren, by whom which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now I say unto you that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? You see, it goes back to the same problem of pride. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Only we can do those miracles. That's our club. That's only we that can do that. And and I don't want to share it with him. And the choir's plenty big enough. And we've got enough youth workers. And we don't need to build any more buildings. I don't, well, I don't know why we need any more people. We've got a very comfortable size here right now. We don't need to add to this. And because of pride, they were about to limit the work of the Holy One of God. Now, this conference is not to limit. This conference is to say, Lord, revive my heart. Expand our work. Help us to glorify you. We want to serve more people. We're giving so that more people can come. We're praying so that more people can come. And you see, every one of us can learn this evening. Every one of us can apply something from this passage. First of all, let me challenge you as I close. Don't carry defective reasoning in your heart. Don't carry this reasoning that says something like, well, you know, I'm pretty important around here. In fact, uh, I'm one of the pillars. Don't carry the reasoning in your heart where we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Secondly, be willing to serve people who can offer you nothing. Be willing to serve the least of these. Be willing to identify with someone that's kind of rough around the edges. And thirdly, be cautious of jealousy in your spirit. I've seen it with pastors, staff members, deacons, church members. It rises up and it quenches revival. Be cautious of that spirit coming up in your life. Three applications, I want to say them again, and then we're going to have an invitation. Number one, be careful of the defective reasoning that says, even subtly, they really need me around here. Secondly, be willing to serve people like a little child who can...